Well, training camp starts this week, Packer fans. You might be careful what you wish for with the dawn of the Jordan Love era. I am a tortured Browns fan because I grew up in Northeast Ohio. Otherwise, you wouldn't be a Browns fan unless you just like pain. Uh, because even if you don't know much about football, you probably still know the Browns are a horrible football team. And they have managed to pull this off for over 20 years consistently, which is a hard feat in and of itself to be consistently bad at something for 20-some years. But the Browns have managed to figure out how to do just that. Now, remember the first time I went to a Browns game. It was on the road against the Cincinnati Bengals. And I was there in my Browns gear down in Cincinnati, and the Browns have, have been bad really most of my life, certainly for the last 20-some years. And we were in Cincinnati, and what was interesting was this time the Browns were actually on the verge of almost making the playoffs. And so were the Bengals, and it was a cold day. The wind was whipping. It was, it was snowing. It was freezing, and the Browns decided to throw the ball 50 sometimes. They lost the game, but what, what stood out to me even more than the loss was in the first quarter, seeing Browns fan and Bengal fan literally fighting in the stands, not just yelling insults at each other, but literally fighting one another. Punches were thrown. They had to bring security up. They, they escorted a couple people out. And I recognize in the first quarter of a game, if you've been tailgating, you're two kegs in. But still, we're really, like, at, at a football game, we're really going to fight over what, what team we root for. So fast forward to a couple years ago where the Browns were playing in Green Bay on Christmas Day. And I decided I would take my family to go see the Browns lose to the Packers. I mean, Merry Christmas, kids. Why not? Maybe we'll see a fight in the process, like visions of the Cincinnati debacle going through my head. And I told my family what we were planning to do. And my parents said, oh, we'll go to the game with you. And my 90-something-year-old grandma said, I'll go too. And we said, nanny, that's what we call her, nanny, it might be below zero. And she said, I'm 90-something years old. You think I've never been cold before? I mean, what do you say to that? I, I, don't, I don't really know what you say to that. So Nanny came with us, and there, then my sister and her husband and their four kids found out we were going to the game. They decided they wanted to come along, so they got tickets just a couple rows over from us. And so we go into Lambeau Field, my first time there, for a game. And we are, we are in, in the stadium, and we're wearing our Browns gear because even though we know we're, we're probably going to lose, hey, we're, we're still proud to represent. And none of what I thought was going to happen happened. We weren't insulted. People weren't yelling at us. Nobody tried to throw a punch. I look over in the middle of the game, a couple rows over. My sister and her husband and their kids are talking with the family behind them, like ongoing throughout the game. I look over, the family behind my sister's family is buying my sister's family hot chocolates, like all of them. I wanted to go switch seats. They were having a family reunion over there, and I'm her real family. A couple rows over, nobody's sending me snacks or hot chocolate, but there they are over there. And what, what happened was that they, they talked the entire game. And it wasn't just that the Packer fans tolerated them. It was that they embraced them. And I, I, couldn't, I couldn't fathom it. Now, I recognize, I recognize we weren't wearing bear colors or we weren't wearing Viking colors. Then it probably would have been a little different. But the experience my family had at the game that day was one of not just being tolerated, but one of being embraced by the people around us. 
in our society, in the age of outrage in which we live, everyone now says, hey, we've got to tolerate. We've got to tolerate. We've got to be tolerant. But as people that love and follow Jesus, I would say that is a low bar. And the bar for us, for those of us that love and follow Jesus, is not merely to tolerate each other, but it's to embrace each other. God calls us to a greater standard, and that's what we're going to look at today as we continue our look at the early church and how God developed it and how God did the supernatural and he utilized the the apostles through the guidance of the Holy Spirit to fulfill the Great Commission. As Jesus was ascending to heaven, he left this world with a message, and that message was, go and make disciples. And take this message of the hope that you can encounter through a relationship with me. Take it first to where you're located, in Jerusalem, and then Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And as we've looked so far at the start of the book of Acts, we've seen the message has come to Jerusalem. And then persecution came, and it spread the message out across the regions. And that's where we are. As today, we look at something that is foundational to the church going to the uttermost parts of the world. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It is a phenomenal resource that you can find in whatever app store you utilize. And once it's installed on your device, there's a feature we use every week called Events. And there you can follow along with us either by enabling your location or just typing in Lakeside Community Church Algoma. It'll pop up. You can make highlights. You can take notes right there, save it to revisit later. If you have a traditional Bible with you this morning, we're in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 1 here in just a minute. And if you're joining us via the stream, thanks so much for joining us. My name is Brian. I'm part of the team here at Lakeside. And the verses will be available for you on the screen below as we continue to see the church spread with the message of the hope of Jesus as it continues to go across the regions, ultimately to the uttermost parts of the world. Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we read this. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So just to give us some context of where we are this morning, what we're going to be looking at, we are immediately introduced, we're immediately introduced to a gentleman named Cornelius. He's, he's a man named Cornelius, and he's a centurion, meaning he is a military officer, and he is in command over 100 other soldiers. He is in command over 100 other men. He's influential, he has power, this is Cornelius, and we're told that he's part of the Italian cohort, so he's part of the Italian military. This lets us know the setting, where we are, who we're talking about, and and what he does. And now verse 2 is going to tell us even more about who he is. We read this, a devout man, Cornelius, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually. And prayed continually to God. This is who Cornelius is. We've already seen what he does. He's he's a soldier. He's in charge of a hundred other soldiers. He's Italian. He's a powerful person. And now we see that he also has a passion and desire to follow after God. That he is a devout follower of God's. And then what else do we see? Well, the expressions of his faith. The expressions of his faith. One is his generosity. He's an incredibly generous person. This is what defines him. He is is defined by his generosity, and he gave generously. He put his faith into action. 
And he put his faith into action by being generous. He was a generous individual. And what else are we told about him? That he prays continually. He prayed continually. These are the hallmarks of his life, that he is a devout follower of God, and the way that reveals himself is by how he conducts himself, that he is generous in how he gives, and that he is someone who prays continually. These are the hallmarks of his life. These these are the hallmarks that should be present in our lives as people that love and follow Jesus as well. That we should be the most generous people. That we should be people who are grounded and rooted in prayer. And as we continue to as we continue to pray through and go through the process of looking to expand our, our staff here at Lakeside, and we are so thankful for what God has done this year and how He's brought Kira to be part of the team as the business administrator. How how God has brought Jacob as the next gen pastor. We're so excited about that. And as we continue to pray through the the hiring of a, a worship arts pastor and we continue to interview people throughout our conversations. We spend a lot of time in that process on staff culture, on the staff culture of, of what we expect and what we're looking for, of, of who we're looking for to add to the team. And we go through our values. We go through our expectations. And one of the, one of the values that I think you need to know that, that we have as, as a staff at Lakeside is, is this, that we work like it depends on us, but we pray like it depends on God because it does. Because it does. And we are going to, listen, we're going to work hard. We're going to work hard. We, we have an incredible privilege, an incredible privilege to serve God's church. And we recognize that Lakeside is not ours. Lakeside is God's church. And we have the incredible privilege to help manage it. We have the privilege to, to help provide programming and, and all kinds of all kinds of services to people, but at the end of the day, Lakeside does not belong to us. It is God's, but the immense privilege that we have to serve at this church means we are going to roll up our sleeves, and we are going to work really, really hard. We are not going to be outworked. We are not going to be lazy. We are going to work like it all depends on us, but what we know is that we're going to pray like it all depends on God because it does, and we can put all the effort in the world into something. We can plan, we can program, but if God is not in it, if God is not for it, then our planning and our programming doesn't matter one bit. And we recognize that. We recognize that everything we do is fully dependent on God. And so one of the values that we have as individuals who work here and as a staff is, yes, we work really hard like it does depend on us. But what we know is we pray really hard like it depends on God because it does. And what we see in Cornelius' life is that same principle. And I recognize that sometimes prayer can be difficult. It can be a difficult spiritual discipline. It can be difficult if you find yourself in a season where you, you think, God, I'm praying for such an obvious request. It's an obvious request. How, how can you not just instantly answer this in the affirmative and you find yourself where you're praying for something over and over and over again and it seems like, God, this is so simple. Why wouldn't you just instantly say yes? Why would, why would you... Why would you answer differently? Why would this take so long? And it's frustrating when it seems like God isn't answering in a, a prayer that seems so obvious to you in a way that you think God should answer. Or sometimes God is just delaying 
providing what he's ultimately going to provide, and, and he's just he's developing patience and, and wanting, things to, wanting things to progress, and, and you just you scratch your head, and you struggle, and you're like, God, why do I have to wait for this? Why do I, why do I have to go through this? And, and in, our, in our humanity, that can become a difficult process sometimes. Or maybe you're just like, God, like, you already know what I need. You already know everything that I need. You already know everything that I want. Why, I know you're eternal, but I'm not, so why do I have to spend my time telling you what you already know? And, and these, are all different, these are all different obstacles, but the reality is this. If you are a follower of Jesus and you have not, you have not developed a, a prayer life, if you've not developed prayer as a spiritual discipline, then you are missing out on one of the greatest benefits and one of the greatest blessings of following after God. And God will, will richly, God will richly bless you and shape you and mold you through that process. And that was something that Cornelius came to understand. And it was a hallmark of his life, and it should be a hallmark of our lives as well. So that is who Cornelius is and what he's about. And about the ninth hour, verse 3 goes on to tell us of the day, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? Now, the ninth hour is, is actually 3 p.m. They didn't start their days at midnight in the way that our culture does. They, they would start their days at 6 a.m. So this is at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and he sees a vision, and he's terrified. And this is a military man. This is a military man who's over 100 other men. So he's seen some things. He has seen and encountered and experienced some things. And it's not like this is the middle of the night. It's not like this just startled him out of nowhere where you kind of wake up and you're not really sure. You, you think you heard something or, or saw something. No, this is the middle of the afternoon from somebody who has seen a lot of things. And he has this vision. God supernaturally gives him this vision. And he is absolutely terrified. He's terrified by this. And I think most of us would be. All of a sudden, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, we're just given this vision. It, it, it's, it's pretty terrifying. And here he is. He's terrified. Yes, what is it, Lord? What is it, Lord? That even though he's terrified, even though there's uncertainty, even though he doesn't, he doesn't know everything, he can't explain it all away easily, he's still willing to say, God, what is it? How can I serve you? What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And now, now the, the Holy Spirit, through Luke, peels back the curtain here and gives us just an incredible glimpse. Gives us an incredible glimpse into heaven. And the picture that we're given here into heaven is of God looking out. God looking out. And he sees a statue. And what is that statue? But God, it's, it's God looking out and he sees a statue. He sees a memorial. And on that statue, on that memorial, is Cornelius' generosity and his prayers. That God looks out and God sees this statue of, of all that Cornelius has done. 
of how he has been principled and how he's been generous and how he's been somebody who prays continuously. And as God looks out, this is the, this is the glimpse that we're told about that God has. And I wonder, as, as God looked out, what markers does he see of our lives? What statues does he see of how we've conducted our lives? When God looks out over the landscape of heaven, what markers and what statues are there? Because here we're told that all that Cornelius has done, how he's been incredibly generous, how he's been disciplined in prayer, it rises up to heaven. And God looks out and he sees this memorial of everything that ultimately, that everything Cornelius ultimately is. And as God looks out, what are our statues? What are our memorials? What is the legacy in how we live our lives? Are we disciplined? Are, are, are these hallmarks in our life? God sends a messenger and he says, go, go get Peter. And where we left off in Acts 9 last week, we saw that Peter is advancing the cause of the gospel across the region now. He's left Jerusalem, he's out, and he's advancing the cause of Jesus across the region. And the angel shows up and he tells Cornelius, you go send men and you go get Peter. And then we move along to verses 7 and 8. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. He sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius goes and he gets two servants, and then he gets a, a soldier who's also a devout follower of God. And he says, this is what God has told me. I need you to go and get Peter. And, and they go to get Peter. And then we move to the next day, in verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. So we fast forward to the next day. And the next day, it's now noon. And Peter, at, at noontime, he goes up onto the roof of the house, and he's there, and he begins to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So we fast forward to the next day. It's noontime. Peter hasn't had lunch. He's hungry, but the food isn't ready yet. He's outside. He's praying. And all of a sudden, he falls into a trance. And in this trance, he's given a vision. And this vision is of a sheet from heaven being lowered over the earth. And on the sheet are all kinds of animals. All kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And the voice that Peter hears is, Peter, get up, kill the animals, and eat them. Now, in order to really understand what's going on here, we have to rewind to, 
to the law that God gave the Israelites. And we don't have time to look at it today, but if you were to go to Leviticus chapter 11, verses 25 and 26, you see the dietary laws and the dietary restrictions that God gave the Israelites. Now, some people would say that God gave the Israelites the dietary restrictions to help keep them healthy. We recognize, for instance, uh, pork is, is a famous one. We recognize that if you don't cook pork to a proper temperature, you're going to have a really bad evening, probably a bad couple next days. And worst case scenario, you could die. All the result of not having pork cooked to an accurate temperature. And the thought process behind some is, well, God recognizing that the Israelites were in the situations that they were in, he gave them these dietary restrictions to help them stay healthy. But ultimately, we recognize the real reason that God gave the Israelites the dietary restrictions was not just health, but it was ultimately to keep the Israelites set apart as his people. Think about the history of the Israelites. Much of their existence was spent in lands and in regions where they were not in control. Much of it was spent where they were oppressed, where they were nomads, where they were exiles, that was much of the Israelites' experience. And that what the dietary laws and restrictions that God gave them served as a function to do was to keep them separate. To recognize and to be a tangible sign of the fact that God called them to live lives that were separate from the cultures that surrounded them and the societies in which they lived. That God had set them apart. So they were to conduct themselves in a different way, not just for health reasons, but for spiritual reasons, that they were God's people and God had set them apart. And so everything on this sheet that Peter sees goes contrary to what's spelled out for us in Leviticus chapter 11. And now Peter finds himself right there. And so verse 14 tells us that, this is what happened. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And I love this, because this is exactly who Peter is. We've seen it time and time again in his life. That God is giving Peter this vision. God is lowering this sheet, supernatural sheet from heaven with all kinds of animals on there. And Peter, for the first time in his life, can enjoy bacon. And God's like, this has my stamp of approval. Take it and eat it. I promise it will change your life once you eat your first piece of bacon. And Peter's like, no, Lord, I'm not going to do it. Peter starts arguing with God about the very thing that God was providing for him. Like, don't you know what Leviticus 11 says, God? I know you wrote it, so you should know it, but you said not to eat, so I'm not going to do this. And the voice came to him again, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Don't just gloss over this. It's not that Peter and God argued about it once. Peter argues with God about it three times. Three times Peter is there, and he's debating with God. And what this reveals to us about God's patience. Because for those of you who've had kids... Put yourself back at the dinner table where you are there and across from you is the little cherub who you love and, and you care about so deeply. 
But you also recognize that you cannot eat chicken nuggets eight meals in a row. And you actually have to eat something green. And I don't mean moldy bread. You actually have to eat a vegetable every once in a while in order for you to actually live your life and for you to grow and be strong and put yourself in that situation where there it is, the dinner that you've made and provided for them on their plate, good food, but they don't want to eat it. And you're like, take a bite. And they're like, no, I don't want to take a bite. And you're like, take a bite. And they're like, no. And then you put yourself in that situation. It's infuriating. And that's the patience of our God. That God is... He's lowering this sheet, and it's not just about the animals. It's about the picture. The dietary restrictions were there because Israel was set apart. What God is conveying to Peter is that in this this age where the church is, We're we're no longer divided by Jews and and Gentiles. We're no longer divided by race. That the church welcomes Jews. And it welcomes Gentiles. And it welcomes men and it welcomes women. And it welcomes people from all different races and all different creeds. So that you, who once were called to set apart, you can now have fellowship with people who are different than you. And you no longer have to abstain from all of these foods. Because you can have community. That's the picture. That's the reason that God is lowering the sheet. And that's what must drive us, this idea that faith in Jesus is bigger than any of our differences. That yes, we're different people, so we have different outlooks on things, and we have different races, and we have different socioeconomic backgrounds, but our like-minded faith in Jesus is greater than our backgrounds and our perspectives. It's greater than our race. It's greater than our socioeconomic feelings. And that as people that love and follow Jesus, we have community. We have community with people who think like us and look like us. And we have community with people that think differently than us and look differently than us. Our faith in Christ is the thing that unites us. and That's the message that God was giving Peter as he lowered the sheet down. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter feels this tension. He feels this tension between what what he knows and what he's done all of his life and what God has called him to do. And he's wrestling there in the midst of that tension. And right then, the, the men that Cornelius had sent, they arrive. 
And God tells Peter, go accompany these men. And you go accompany these men without any hesitation whatsoever. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish, Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. And we have Peter, the Jew, so Jewish that God lowers the sheet and says, eat, and he says, "Mm mm-mm. And we have Cornelius, the Gentile. And we have this meeting. And they're united. They're united. They have differences, but they're united. And they're united by the fact that Jesus is the thing that defines us. Jesus is the thing that unifies us. Jesus is the thing that brings us together. That their common faith in what Jesus has done, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He died on the cross for their sins, three days later rose again, and our faith, if we place our faith and our trust in Him, He is the way that we have redemption. They're, They're unified in their faith in that. And that is greater than any difference they can have. And the next day he rose and went away with them. And some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. Peter and Cornelius, they come together. Again, differences. But their differences are not greater than their faith in Christ. And when Peter entered... Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. Cornelius wants to worship Peter because he knows all that God has done through Peter's life. He's, he's heard the accounts. He's heard the teaching. He knows all that God has done through Peter. He bows down to worship, and Peter stops him and says, Don't look at me. You look at Jesus. Don't look at me. Look at Jesus, and that is what we all must do, that we continually and constantly point people to Christ, that we point people to Jesus, that we see, we see it here, that we don't follow other people, but that we follow Christ, and that we spend our lives and we spend our energy pointing people not at ourselves, Not at what we have done. Not at what we have accomplished. But we spend our lives and we spend our energy pointing people to Jesus where our hope is found. That's exactly what Peter does here. He says, I'm not the one to worship Cornelius. You worship Jesus. And this is how we should live our lives. That we have a daily pursuit. We have a daily pursuit of God. And we spend our time pointing everyone we encounter. Not to us, but we point everyone we encounter to Jesus. That we, in our desire to follow after God, 
We have the hallmarks present in our lives where we work our faith into action. That we as people that love and follow Jesus, we should be the most generous. We should be the most faithful. We should be the most loving people that people could ever encounter. And that as we live our lives, we are building monuments that God looks out and he sees how generous and how kind and how loving and how caring we have been. That we're leaving these marks in heaven. What our lives have been. And that we are a place that every person that walks through these doors recognizes first and foremost that they are loved by God because they are. And secondly, that they are loved by us. Which means that we recognize that nobody in this world thinks exactly like I think. And my wife would say, praise God for that. But nobody else in this world thinks exactly the way I think. And nobody else in the world thinks exactly the way you think. That we have different backgrounds. And some of us, some of us are as pasty as I am. And some of us are of different ethnicities. And, and some of us have different political persuasions. That Lakeside needs to be the place that when you walk in these doors, you are loved and you are welcome. And what we recognize is we just don't tolerate each other, but we embrace each other. And that Lakeside is a place where you walk in, even if you have a Trump bumper sticker, even if you have a Biden bumper sticker, or even if you have, I didn't vote for any of them because they're all idiots bumper sticker. Whatever, whatever it might be, that you are welcome here and you are loved here. And that we can agree to disagree on some things, but ultimately we recognize that what unifies us is greater than anything that divides us. And what unifies us is who Jesus is and what he has done. And that is the forefront of what we do and what we're about. And we have conversations with people. We talk about our disagreements. We, we can debate without being disagreeable. We challenge each other. That's what a community is all about. That's what we've been called to be. But every person that has placed their faith and trust in Jesus is welcome in these doors. And people that have not yet put their faith and trust in Jesus, we want to love and we want to show there is no greater thing that you could ever experience than redemption. And that's available through a relationship with God. That's what we have been called to be. And there will be differences. But let's make sure the differences don't divide. Because if I were the enemy, and I were to look out, and I were to see the hope that's available to people, that's available through Christ and what he's already accomplished, and I would recognize I've already been defeated, I would do anything that I could to make sure that I damaged as, as much as I could this message of hope. And instead of people experiencing the love, I can't do anything to stop them experiencing the love of God, but I can do everything I can to stop them experiencing the love of one another. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to become divisive. And I'm going to highlight all the things that could divide and make them lose sight of the fact that they should be unified by the thing that matters the most. 
what we see here in Acts chapter 10 is God's called us not just to tolerate. Not just tolerate each other. But to really love each other. To really welcome each other. To really support each other. To be there. To embrace one another. Because that which unifies us, our faith and trust in Jesus, is greater than anything that divides us. And we need to live that way. God, I pray that we would be a place and we would be a people who recognize that which unifies us is greater than anything that could divide us. And Lord, we will have our differences, we'll have different perspectives, we'll have different ideas, but ultimately, God, our faith and trust in you and who you are and what you have done is greater than any of our differences. And I pray that we would be a place that understands that, a place that is, is here to encourage each other, to challenge one another, that we can disagree on some things without being disagreeable. We can debate on some things, but still love the individual and love the person. God, I pray that we would not be divided. And I pray that we would see one another in the way that you see us. So God, help us live that way. Where we are unified. Where we keep you at the forefront. Make you our main focus. In an age of division, in an age of outrage, I pray we would reject that. And I pray we would choose love. We would choose peace. We would walk in the type of community that you have called us to be. A community that loves one another. A community that follows after you. Be the type of people you have called us to be. pray, God, that we would, we would think through how we live our lives in the way that Cornelius did. Thank you for those who enable Lakeside to do what we do through their generosity. And I pray, God, as they continue to be generous, you would continue to bless them in very rich and powerful ways. May we who follow Jesus leave these memorials of generosity, of dedication to prayer and walking with you. May these be hallmarks that define our lives. May they be hallmarks that define this church. May you use us in the region to convey the hope that is so desperately needed and is only available through a relationship with your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.